You see the extraordinary resilience and strength in these communities mm. that despite so many years of so much difficulty and maltreatment, mm. we have thriving and strong Aboriginal communities full mm. of extraordinary people, strong, strong people. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. Because by looking at the stars, we are literally looking back through time. And as the world gets smaller and more connected, the narrative of freedom is rubbing off on people of different cultures and religions, however remote. You can't get anywhere if you just copy what somebody told you. You have to be challenging things all the time, challenging everything, you know, uh, and thinking new thoughts and so on. Welcome to Blabcoats. My name is Hamid Siddiqui alongside Alex Ray. Uh, today we have Dr. Rebecca Grace at the Ingham Institute uh, and we're really excited to talk to her. Uh, you research, well, we asked actually what she, what we should call her, and she said development psychology because she's so multidisciplinary. Rebecca has one of these very hard kind of research areas to kind of characterize in one word because it's yeah. a very multidisciplinary. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so how about we get into what inspired you to get into research? Well, I think part of the reason, maybe we should talk about why we wanted to have Rebecca on yeah, first. Um, part of the reason I think why we wanted to have you on, Rebecca, is because uh, marginalized groups face particular challenges. And uh, we believe like one of the best ways to kind of make a more equitable society is kind of address those issues. So it's really good to have somebody on who works in the area of marginalized communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So mm -hmm. let's get into why you got into uh, your research and, and what inspired you, inspired you to get down this path. Um, so this will sound cheesy, but this is the true story. So I'll tell no, you it like regardless cheesy of yeah. cheesy. Um, I, so... I read an article in a magazine, actually. So, so while I was an undergraduate student studying psychology at Sydney University, uh, I read an article um, that had quite a vivid, well, an image of a baby that had been abandoned, a baby girl that had been abandoned. And the article was about this baby girl and uh, what was now going to happen to her. And they were unable to find her mother. Um, and, it, and this article broke my heart. You know, sometimes you read something that really stays with you. Mm. And it broke my heart not only for this baby, for this child but my heart actually broke for the mother of mm. this child as well and I wondered a lot about the circumstances that had led to the abandonment of that baby and whether that mother had felt that she had no choice but to do that and mm. what sort of circumstances could lead to that kind of a decision and for, for whatever reason that article really stayed with me and I became really you know interested and concerned for the sort of supports that exist within our community and, yeah. and how we support those who are most vulnerable within our communities. Yeah. Um, and, and so that became a real catalyst then for an interest in this, in this area. Yeah. And my focus is very much on children and families. So, you know, I, I suppose something that I feel really strongly committed to is the idea that every child in our community, in Australia or in the world, um, yeah. should have every opportunity to thrive and to be safe, regardless of the circumstances that they're born 
born into. Yeah. And, um, and so that was the beginning of my journey, I suppose, just the reading of that article. Yeah. That, that, sorry to interrupt. That's really mm. interesting because I, I, I view kids as, it's like you either win the lottery as a child or you don't. You have yeah. no, yeah. Th- there's nothing that you could have done to That's choose right. where you're born, who your yeah. parents are, wh- what environment you're born to. And so then the most, if, if you're born as a child in, in a really disadvantaged situation, like it's really unfair for you. Yeah, and I it think is not an even playing field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think like we should design society in such a way that if you, you didn't, if you could choose to be born incarnated into this world, you wouldn't know who you, who you, you would be born as. So you could be born as as a rich person, as a poor person, mm-hmm. as as a as a person who's disabled, but you'd still enjoy life, um, and, and it would be. It's like the good. it's like the veil of ignorance. I think it. I'm going to, probably going to butcher this. So I'm not a philosopher, but is it John John Rawls? I think who had the veil of ignorance, and he said that exactly that. Right, we should try and design our societies as if you don't know who who you are. Yeah. So before you come into it, you don't know what person you're going to be in society, what your circumstances yeah. are. You don't know, you know, if you're going to be born to a disadvantaged household, perhaps you're going to be a drug addict. You might even be a criminal in a jail. Mm-hmm. And if you design societies with that in mind, hey, I could be anyone, it kind of you start to acknowledge that, like you said, we don't all live in an equal playing field. That's right. But I subscribe really strongly to that idea of the village. Like I feel that we're all responsible for Mm. the well-being and safety of all of the children in our communities. And Mm. I take that really seriously, both on a personal and a professional, on a professional level. Yeah. Mm. So you read that article and you were doing your PhD at that time? So I was an undergraduate student at that point. And and I was also working um, in a a respite care facility for kids with disabilities, just as my part-time job to help support me through university. And I think that really gave me some insight into um, the the challenges um, of families who are looking for who are caring for children who have high support needs and but also the strengths and the opportunities that are part of that experience and so I was having a few different experiences that were exposing me to different ways of you know different challenges that families were experiencing in lots of different ways Mm. so um, at the end of my undergraduate studies at the end of my honours year I was offered a place in the PhD program um, and was really excited to to take that and I don't know if if I'm going off track so pull me back oh no no whatever you want (laughs) But, um, uh, you know, we talked a little before the podcast started about how intimidating that journey into postgraduate studies can be. And that was certainly my experience as I started my PhD. I felt the pressure to be brilliant and wondered if I was at all or if I ever could be. And... and, um, and so I decided. I, I saw. I advertised a research position with Professor Gwyneth Lowell at Sydney University, and her research was all around supporting families who have children with high support needs. Mm. So this was a lovely match for me in terms of that employment experience that yeah. I'd had. I was really interested in those issues, but also um, I thought I need to work in a research project because I need to figure out how to be a good researcher if I'm going to be successful in my own PhD. Yeah. And so that, that experience of working with Gwyneth Llewellyn and being on her team and speaking to more than 100 families um, about the sorts of support that they needed to be able to do the best job they could in terms of raising their children, mm. um, was just a, was in, that was inspiring for me. And mm. that was really when I caught the research bug and I could really see that um, research had the potential for such important impact. I guess before then, I'd seen researchers sitting 
Well, so, you know, I suppose the ivory tower model of research where, you know, very brilliant people did very brilliant things and mm. there was a hope that that would filter through to having some kind of impact. Yeah. Um, but in working with Gwyneth, I could see um, the intersection between policy and practice and research and how essential research is mm. to, that, uh, to that process and, and how impactful research really could be. Um, so that, I think that's when research really started to become a passion for me and, right. and influenced then the way my own research career yeah, proceeded right. from that point on. Well, so, so you saw the potential, that, the potential impact that research can have and that's what sort of captured you about it. Absolutely. Mm. I'm a huge respecter and admirer of pure research and lab-based research. There's such an important, like brilliant, brilliant people doing wonderful work. Mm. But for me, um, I only became really passionate about research when I felt that it could have a very direct impact. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's the... That's the intersection that really interests me. That's where I want to see yeah. it, right on the cusp between um, the rigor of research yeah. and understanding policy and practice and how to translate. So, you know, people talk about translational research, yeah, right. how to translate research, how to translate practice and policy back into research, mm. that sort of give and take, um, and how research can directly influence the implementation of, you know, services, programs, initiatives yeah. um, to have an impact on the ground with families. That That's the pointy end, and that's where I'm most interested to yeah. sit. We, we wanted to kind of get to a little bit of that uh, mm. uh, later, and also some of your mixed methods approaches that you've yeah. taken. But okay. maybe first, um, and we already have talked a little bit about this, but maybe we can... Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the specific challenges that a lot of these disadvantaged groups that you work with, I know you work particularly with Aboriginal communities. Yeah. So yeah. what are some of the partic particular challenges that these groups actually face? Um, I mean, that's a huge yeah. question. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe because you're more in the field of health and I believe education a bit as yeah, well. Yeah, so that's maybe right. Maybe you can focus on those. But probably, you know, the biggest, well, so for me, from my point of view, um, the biggest issue is the level of, level of trauma that exists within these communities. And I think that yeah. it's essential that researchers or um, service workers or anybody who, who wants to engage with Indigenous communities understands the intergenerational trauma. Mm. Um, I, I'm concerned when uh, sometimes we talk about... Um, negative behaviours that happen within Aboriginal communities and lots of other communities, of course, and mm. for other families as well. But you know, um, we point to some of those difficulties and, and the implication is that that's an Indigenous thing or mm. you know, that it's a problem with the Indigenous community, whereas I actually see so much of that as symptoms or evidence of trauma within those communities. Mm. And, of course, these communities have endured many, many years worth of ongoing trauma. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I think a trauma lens is actually really important. And I, I don't want that... I, I certainly don't look at Aboriginal communities and use that trauma lens to see them as um, uh, sort of injured or broken people. Please don't take what mm. I'm saying to imply that. Um, but I do think we need to understand that the mistrust of services, for example, makes complete sense yeah. because we've betrayed them, or services, mainstream services have betrayed them over and over again and have not um, met their needs over and over again. Mm. Um, you know, their mistrust of academics and researchers is mm. completely understandable. Um, you know, the, the concern um, for their children and, and not wanting to expose themselves to any sort of scrutiny around the way that they're raising their children mm. is completely understandable because they've been so misunderstood for so many years. Mm. Uh, so I, I actually think understanding intergenerational 
trauma is probably one of the most important things. And then you can work with Aboriginal people and instead of seeing them as broken and traumatised, you see the extraordinary resilience and strength in these communities mm. that despite so many years of so much difficulty and maltreatment, mm. we have thriving and strong Aboriginal communities full of extraordinary people, strong, strong people. I don't think I know, um, you know, especially women, the women that I encounter within these, within Aboriginal communities, I don't know that I've met anywhere else collections of such strong and resilient women who will fight for their children and and fight for their communities. And so I think when you understand trauma, it actually opens the way for you to see resilience and strength. Yeah, that's interesting. I was reading an article recently um, about, I think, a new uh, um, TV station for Aboriginal health in mm-hmm. Arnhem Land. I don't know mm. if you've heard of that. I think it's just been uh, funded. And But they're saying a similar thing that... Um, it, it's less about like kind of talking down to people like you have mm. these problems and mm. here's how to fix them because mm. this is a tv station dedicated to just health tv and right. so there's like they're trying to encourage um aboriginal people to go to the healthcare services yep. and things like that and they're talking to a lot of uh, aboriginal leaders and said that it's really only going to work if you kind of meet us like eye to eye yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, one of the guiding principles from my perspective is reciprocity. So, Mm. you know, I I spend a lot of time just talking to Aboriginal people and seeking to understand their perspectives, seeking to understand what's important to them, sharing, you know, what's important to me. So that sort of reciprocity in that relationship. Mm. And it's kind of um, challenging and interesting as a researcher because... Well, it's time-consuming. I mean, so for me, it's all about relationship. And I see research as entirely about relationship, especially the sort of research that I do. Um, And and that is time-consuming. And there isn't time within the workload, the academic workload model, Mm. for relationship building or sitting under gum trees, Mm. you know, just talking and seeking to understand somebody else's perspective. Um, And so that, that can be challenging as a researcher when you know the expectation is that you have to have written this many papers and this mm. many grants and you have you know, this much marking to do and whatever. Um, but nothing is more important than that to me. Yeah. And I've spent many a whole day or many an afternoon just um, simply talking. Yeah. Uh, and I think that sort of building of trust um, and relationship. I think also being willing to alter your research to change your questions, to allow mm. the questions to be generated. When I say allow, that's terrible because that sounds like I'm still in the control position, but mm. you know, encouraging the generation of research questions from the community, yeah. you know, being open to um, the way that you evaluate or the sorts of instruments that you include in your research so that they're comfortable and meaningful for the community that you're working with. Yeah. Like that kind of thinking, the co-design of services, the co-design of research. Um, those are words that are often thrown around, but my hope is that I can do that genuinely and legitimately. Mm-hmm. That, um, uh, you know, that really it can be about relationship and reciprocity. And so I spend a lot of time, not just there are other good researchers who do the same thing. I'm not saying this is special about me in particular, mm. but, you know, a lot of time um, seeking to build relationship and reciprocity. Yeah. And so by reciprocity, even things like I've written grants for Indigenous communities, for example. So I wrote a grant to help um, the Broken Hill community get a, a bus to help with their mobile um, toy library. Mm. And, you know, that's not something that sits on my CV. That's not, yeah. um, 
you know, something that builds my track record in any way. Mm. And, you know, but I did that. That's about reciprocity. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think re- relationship and reciprocity is key to this kind of work. Yeah, yeah especially, yeah. as you mentioned, the, the skepticism that the community has towards academia and, and yeah. services yeah. At, at, because they've been let down by them so much in the yeah. past. So, so it's important to build that trust and have Absolutely. reciprocity. Um, the, you mentioned that your research question shifts um, you know, working with with uh, with the community, can you give us an example of, of how? Yeah, yeah. Because just just to back up on that, um, another question we had from you is uh, about how you and you answered a little bit then by talking to people, but how you actually go about approaching research um, with like using mixed methods because we're both pretty hardcore scientists, so strictly qualitative, uh, quantitative, yeah. sorry, research. Um, so maybe you could yeah talk about that as well. Yeah. So which question do you want me to answer? <laughs> oh, <first? laughs> yeah. Just jump on my question, hijack it. Like, oh, yeah, don't worry about Hamid's question. No. So like, your question I'm was just curious about how your research question shifts and changes um, and, and if you can give us an example of, hmm. of how that's happened. Oh, sure. So, for example, I'm a chief investigator on a project called the Goodiga Project. Goodiga hmm. means healthy baby in the um, language of the Tharawal people, which is uh, the... Aboriginal people who live in the Campbelltown sort of area, and we do a lot of work with that community. And um, and we've been conducting a longitudinal birth cohort study um, with 150 Aboriginal infants all born at Campbelltown Hospital, and we've been tracking them, and those children are sort of 12 now. Oh, wow. um, uh, but so we were looking at uh, pursuing that research and continuing to track those young people into adolescence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so most of the questions we wanted to ask were still around their academic performance and their development and such. Um, but in talking to the Aboriginal community, there was much stronger interest in um, things like teenage pregnancy and, um, you know, effective prevention of teenage pregnancy. And so, you know, there was just then a shift in, in research focus to respond to the questions that were actually most interesting and meaningful right. to them. But, but often that shift happens right back at the beginning. So that's an example of where a project's been happening yeah. and then we've sort of influenced, our course has been influenced by the interests of the community. Um, but often those shifts happen right back in the, the beginning in, as part of that sort of co-design or those, in, that, those initial mm. um, conversations. Uh, there can be a shift. So, for example... Um, I do uh, quite a lot of work with an organisation called Wenange, which is an Aboriginal organisation that works with um, communities and children, who are, particularly children who've been removed into out-of-home care. Mm. Um, and so, you know, there have been questions and research programs that have been generated as part of that collaboration to fit with the interests of, of that organisation. So, yeah. yeah. It's it's about um, it's about doing not what only is sort of scientifically meaningful, but what's meaningful to community. I think yeah. that's extremely important. They need to feel yeah. that their questions are being answered. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I assume that as as the more that the approach is used, that the more willing they would be to participate in oh, further absolutely. research. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Because it makes sense yeah. to them. Because because they they see you as on their team. That exactly. You're, you're trying to like actually help them rather than just say, oh, this is what we want to do, come do this for us. That's right, that's right. And we really, you know, researchers without meaning to really can sometimes come in like steamrollers. You know, we have very strict timelines and very limited amounts of money and we need to have things happen quickly and on time. And and so with all the best intention in the world, I think researchers can be perceived as steamrollers Mm. just in there to get the data that they need. Um, And, you know, I'm just 
very, very resistant to that. Mm. Mm. Your, Maybe we can, your question, Alex. Oh, no, no, I think you kind of answered it as well. That, that, yeah. The mixed methods thing? Yeah, well, not even just the mixed methods thing, but how you approach uh, research. Researching. Yeah. yeah. Um, but maybe we can move on to now, uh, which you mentioned before, where your focus was about how your research, you really want it to inform policy, because we kind of had a bit of a segue there, right? Yeah. Um, so how do you, as a researcher, go about making that next step? Okay, you've got this data, you've found something out, you've answered a research question, but how do you then turn that into like a, a procedural change or a policy change? Because yeah. that's where the real like action happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. So... I think what I've learned, so early in my career, the way that you just described it is the way it would often mm. happen, where you'd do a project, you'd have your data, you'd have your findings, and then you'd go out there to try and get policymakers to pay attention to it. Mm. And you'd be hoping like hell it just didn't end up on some kind of shelf somewhere, ignored. Mm. Uh, but the more the years have gone on, the more I realised that the most effective way to engage policymakers is also from the beginning. So rarely now do I do a project and have data and then I'm going to policymakers yeah. to say, I've got a story to tell that yeah. you need to hear. Um, you know, just like there's that reciprocity and relationship building with community, yeah. those same principles apply in terms of policymakers. Yeah. So right back at the beginning when we have research ideas, I want to talk to policymakers. I want to talk to people in government. I want to talk to service organisations. Say, is this meaningful to you? How mm. should we shift and think about these questions so that they answer your questions? Will you partner with us on mm. this? Will you be part of this journey from the beginning? Mm. Um, and and I think that's the way that you have yeah. impact is to engage with them from the very, very beginning and along the whole process. Mm. Um, and then when you have that story to tell at the end, um, it's a shared story. It's their story too. They've yeah. been invested as well. I mean, there are other things, techniques that people know as well, like the way that you deliver the information. We know that you have to have really snappy one pages, that people yeah. really aren't going to read much more than that, at least not initially. You have to get their attention. And some people say now that even one page is way too much. Basically, yeah. you need a snappy paragraph, nice, clear paragraph. Um, so there's, there are definitely things like that in terms mm. of the way that you communicate your results. And we think a lot about that, and that's really challenging for academics. We talk yeah. in a particular way, um, and um, and so I've, I personally have found that quite challenging to have yeah. simple, straightforward messages because we want to put all the caveats in yeah. and you know and protect ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so that's that's quite a skill that I'm still learning and still yeah. trying to be really good at. But I think the clue to engaging is about reciprocity. Yeah. relationship, respect and involvement from the very beginning. And I don't think, if you can't really get that buy-in from the beginning, I think you've got a bit of an uphill battle, really, yeah, yeah. in terms of engaging them at the end. I'm not saying it can't happen, but it's tougher, a much tougher um, journey, mm. much tough, tougher road. There's also, um, you are mentioning before about like those snappy paragraphs. Yeah. As uh, researchers and academics, we're used to like writing things like papers yeah. you know, and there's a set format. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, I think as a researcher, you have to kind of question what the value of papers are. Like yeah. I, I think it's yeah. definitely very valuable to communicate to your peers. Absolutely. It's very yeah. very valuable for other academics. But, yes, absolutely. But if you get like uh, a few hundred citations, like that might be great on, on an article, yeah? yeah but yeah. it's really nothing when if you have a more famous podcast than Blabcoats, <laughs> you, could, you could reach tens of thousands of people That's theoretically, right? right? Yes, yeah? yes. If you write an article in a blog or something like that, yes. you're going to reach uh, yeah. tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there's really 
I think researchers and academics like have to really kind of take yeah. those numbers seriously and think oh, about the way absolutely. we communicate our ideas. Yeah. And I think the university is changing as well. Like mm. more and more, um, we're required to write impact statements. So in years past, uh, that isn't that isn't a metric on which we were measured. So, yeah. you know, so we were absolutely measured on the number of publications and the citations for those papers and how much yeah. grant income we brought in, that kind of thing. Um, but, but there's, you know, things are shifting and certainly being able to demonstrate impact is becoming more and more important. So that is opening mm -hmm. the way for um, engagement with the conversation or blog sites or podcasts and, yeah. and those other things are such an important way of communicating and disseminating research. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a really positive thing. No. But it's tough, actually. Well, I don't know if I only speak for myself. It's tough as a researcher to um, to communicate in that way. Yeah. So I have this amazing opportunity where um, I, I've just finished a randomised control trial of a volunteer home visiting program, a mm. great big study that we've uh, run across uh, four states of Australia, um, and it was completely supported by a private philanthropist. Yeah. Anyway, he also became concerned that, like, that the way we communicated was way too academic and way too complicated. And he's, he was always just saying, just give me the punchline, give me the punchline. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't want all of that detail. Yeah. And so to support us in being able to do that well, through his connection somehow, um, he had um, this absolutely top marketing person who works for MasterCard. I think it's like the top marketing MasterCard marketing person yeah. um, work with um, myself and some of the service organisation people um, over a couple of sessions to help us learn how to communicate yeah. a message well to non-academics. That's good. And yeah. it was incredibly brilliant and yeah. useful experience for me and also really confronting. So, you know, this guy would ask would ask me to stand up and talk about something and I'd do that and he'd say do you know that you know academics come across as passive aggressive you just sound so <laughs> passive aggressive and I thought I was coming across as confident yeah and, yeah. I, and I went home like oh my gosh am I passive aggressive <laughs> like, you know talk to my friends and my family like is yeah. this who I am and but I just think it's the way that we can come across when we're trying to hedge the way that we speak yeah. you know because we're very conscious of not making very definitive statements yeah. and such so anyway yeah it was this it was an amazing opportunity yeah, and i learned a great. lot but i don't know that i'm good at it yet i'm yeah. trying really hard to be good I, at I it i think you're right in that it's a very different skill and yeah. i know when i was in my undergrad um there wasn't very much of that at all yeah uh, i had to pick units specifically that had those types of assessments right, um, right. but i i'm glad to say i think that's changing a little yeah. bit uh, i think i was mentioning to you before we start I actually teach unit in the master of research here at western sydney uni called um research literacies uh -huh. and that's all about writing like a blog piece right and that's right. modeled off the conversation isn't that great yeah it is. But so that's even, great but even that we were approached uh last yeah, year to start yeah. um an undergrad unit and we've been helping out uh, roger dawkins who's um right. from the school of the humanities and uh, communication arts mm. um is and that's all about Podcast yeah, that's an. I'm just. A, I'm just like taking the opportunity to plug that <laughs> to plug that unit for uh, the, any undergrads like listening to this. That's a unit that any undergrad across the uni can do, um, mm -hmm. and they have to produce a short, like, ten minute podcast feature where they feature any story they want, but they basically have to like tell a story. That's really brilliant. Podcasting. And so do it's good they to see have non-academics should mark and provide feedback? Yeah, yeah. Because oh, we're good. good at yeah, we're really idea. good at talking to each other. Yeah. yeah but yeah. the problem is talking to non-academics. Yeah. So 
yeah. That's brilliant. And maybe, you know, some of us who've been around for a long time and who haven't had the opportunity to participate in courses like that, we should, yeah. like, do some <laughs> professional development because yeah. it's, um, it's a really tough skill. Yeah, it is. It is a yeah. skill in and of itself. I yeah, think. yeah. yeah. I, I guess I didn't realise how difficult it was until I hit the Masters of Research and then I had to translate, like basic scientific research to a broader mm. audience so I was like ah yeah like, mm. I, I don't know how to do this yeah properly, you know yeah. so it's definitely I mean it, it I think it's good in universities I feel I'm moving towards that translation of knowledge to the broader public I think there's more emphasis mm. on that we see more science communicators uh, more communicators of research and I think that's a positive because we want society to be engaged with with what research is finding out then they can care about stuff and, and like a good example right now is the climate change where you know people don't really engage with the science and so we, we have policies and, and a society that is apathetic to actually making changes that are necessary and yeah but I guess I would also see the flip side of that so I think translation is not only about um scientists communicating their research to the public but I think it's also about scientists listening and engaging with the public yeah. mm. so I see this as a I, again a reciprocity, reciprocity. Yeah. so not only an opportunity for the public to change their behavior based on all that we find yeah. and know yeah. an opportunity for research to change and mm. respond yeah. based on engagement and understanding what the issues are in terms of community and public so yeah. I, I completely agree with what you're saying as long as you're talking about that two-way, two-way, two-way engagement yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree I think nobody likes to be talked down to you know yeah. Um, yeah. they like being heard and listened to and then be engaged in a conversation rather yeah. than just you know I'm going to lecture you on, on the science of climate change yeah, yeah. that's right yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, we're reaching 30 minutes. I know oh. this conversation just flew past. <laughs> <laughs> Very um, fast. Tell us, uh, is there anything you'd like people to be aware of or... Maybe you're on Twitter or something. Is there anything you want to plug? See, I'm very, very bad at those sorts of social media things. That's my goal. That's actually my New Year's resolution this year. I have a Twitter account that I never, ever write anything on. Uh, No. uh, So, no, I can't plug a Twitter account. (laughs) Um, Not yet. But watch this space. Yeah. uh, uh, but people could probably contact you through the English oh, if they wanted to of get in course. touch with you. Yeah, and yeah. yeah, please do. I, we love to talk to people. So I'm the deputy director of a centre called the Centre for Translational Research and Social Innovation mm. here at the Inghams Institute, and we do lots of work focused on children and families, and we love to talk to anybody who wants to talk to us. Excellent. <laughs> and are you taking on, I'm not sure if they do this, um, research students yeah absolutely okay. and we actually have two PhD scholarships advertised at the moment oh, awesome. um, yeah. so one is all about child voice and participa- participatory methods with children and young people yeah. which is an area that really excites me I'm so interested in, and excited around how to engage children and young people in policy debate and service design in really meaningful ways so we have a fantastic opportunity there if somebody has a, sh- a passion around those kinds of issues and we also have a PhD scholarship advertised at the moment that is about sustained nurse home visiting for vulnerable families Um, there's a fantastic amazingly huge international uh, program that is led by Lynn Kemp who's the director of the center that I work in um, called the MESH program which is maternal early childhood sustained home visiting and we want to embed a PhD student within that work Uh, so somebody who has an interest in supporting vulnerable families and that would be a more quantitative piece of work there's an opportunity there so we'd love to find really passionate fantastic people who might enjoy those opportunities Cool. There you go. Well, thank you so much, (laughs) Rebecca. We really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. See you guys later. 
Hey, did you like this episode? If so, why don't you head over to iTunes and rate and review us, like our Facebook and Twitter pages, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel. What will help us the most is if you share this episode with a friend and spread the good news. 